This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Now, here's the thing. Every man, woman, and dog experience their fair share of troubles. Even the girl you just stalked on Instagram, who looks like she's more gloss than grit. That's why I'm so excited to welcome Kim Patel to the show today. From dealing with mortality at a young age to juggling three jobs to pay for college, Kim Patel is unafraid to speak up about the tough things in life. While others looked down at her circumstances and questioned her potential, Kim defied the odds and soared to the top. Now, Kim is the Director of Global Corporate Strategy at Vice Media in New York City and is recognised as one of the youngest corporate directors in Vice's history. I'm so excited to talk to Kim today about the challenges she faced growing up and also her experiences in the media industry. In today's episode, Kim is open and real about her experiences with depression and anxiety and her honesty really does help us see that embracing our pain can ultimately lead to fulfilment. Take a listen. Kim. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Love that. So, you know, you and I connected recently over LinkedIn. And when I looked into you and all the awesome work you're doing in the media space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you making the time. Yeah, no problem. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Cool. So for those of us who don't know who you are or what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. So um, currently I serve as the Director of Global Corporate Strategy at Vice Media, if you've heard of it. Um, and I've been in media for about six years. Prior to that, I was a ex-investment banker in a prior life. Um, went to NYU for undergrad and from Jersey City, New Jersey. That's where I grew up. It's my home. I love that city so much. It's changed a lot, but um, you know, my parents were first gen, I'm a first gen kid. My parents came over from India in the eighties. And so I think that how I've been raised and the circumstances in which I've been raised, have really impacted the way that I do business today. What, and I can go into that further, but, um, that's just like a little tidbit about me. Uh, it's made me a super scrappy person. Um, and I've kind of had that in me for as long as I can know. And it's also impacted the way that I do business and media and venture capital, um, working with startups, working with nonprofits. So, yeah. That is so interesting. And it's so funny because when I looked into you and all the different things that you've done and that you're doing, I was like, 
how does she juggle it all and how did this all come to play? So before we dive a bit deeper into your career and how you progressed in that, I want to dive a bit more into what you said around Jersey and growing up and your family. So, you know, what did your parents do and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life? Yeah. So, you know, um, my parents came over from India in in like the eighties, early eighties, um, immigrated to Jersey and Jersey city was a, it's still a heavily, um, immigrant neighborhood today. Um, so the, you know, they were, they never, never passed high school. They never graduated high school. My mom worked on an assembly line most of her life, um, probably making less than minimum wage. And my dad tried to start his own business and it failed and really early on when I was young and, and it's kind of been tough ever since. So I, I grew up in a financially constrained environment. I never realized that until I was a little bit older. Um, I never felt like I was constrained. Uh, my mom's biggest thing was making sure that I was educated. She thought that was the only tool that I had to, to, to do anything I wanted. She's just like, this is all I can give you. I can't give you money. I can't give you a house and all this other stuff. That's a little bit more material, um, but I can give you this. And so I've had that since I was a young kid. And so it's always been about, there's, it's like where there's a will, there's a, there's a way. So any problem we face, like there was always a solution we could find. Like that's how she raised both me and my sister. So we're just like super scrappy. I mean, sometimes I'm like, I feel like my mind works like a con artist. Like I'm just like, you know, I see a problem and I'm like, there's a loophole. There's always a loophole and there's always a way to find a solution. And it, and that type of mindset is very much a survivalist mindset. And you kind of need that if, you know, you've been faced with a lot of obstacles growing up and, and just since you're young and like your constant thinking is always like, if I want something, I'm going to go get it and I'm just going to figure out how to do it. And it doesn't matter if like it's a linear, <laughs> if it's logical or if it's linear in your way of thinking, like my way of thinking is not linear is what I realized about myself because I grew up like this. Um, and so I think that has very much been embedded in me and it's definitely impacted the way that I function in business today. So even though I work in media, I work in corporate, corporate America portion of media. So what that means is, is like, I'm not the one out in the field doing the actual journalism or writing the story, but my job is to make sure my producers, the journalists that I work for, that's who I always said I worked for, go and do the work that they need to do. And I have, I keep the wheels running. Like that is my job and, or I'm growing the business so that they can do more of what they're doing. Like, that's how I always thought about it. It's a little tough in this environment today in the media industry to be able to do that. So, you know, I've, um, I, that mindset has always allowed me to like speak my truth. It took me a few years to build up that confidence and the experience to get a seat at the table and then actually say what I'm thinking and, and pro- provide like a point of view. It, it was not easy. It was, it was not an easy road to travel. But I think the only reason I got there at the age that I have is because of the way my parents raised me. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And I think it's just so, it's just so real. You know, even when chatting to you, just so real, you're like, this is it. This is the situation. And it's not often you get that, you know, and I think that everything's, especially in today's world, so glossed over. Yeah. We've got social media, we've got or, you know, podcasts that everyone's like, oh, I did this and I got this, you yeah. know, but it's, and it, it's just not real. And so I love that about you. And I, I think that's awesome that, that that came from your family and your parents and your upbringing. What do you think was one of, like, if you had to pick one key thing that was like the biggest takeaway for you during your childhood, what would that be? I would say the biggest takeaway for me is, is 
like, is what do other people think about you? It doesn't really matter. So at the end of the day, I have to tell myself, I, I, I have an internal battle with myself all the time about, can I be somebody who can build wealth and still be a good person? All right. Because today, in today's world, you kind of get punished for doing well, especially when it comes to making a lot of money or being in the top 5% of income earners, like whatever the case is, because of what our society is faced with today, especially in the U.S. And so for me, I never had, I, I, I never had wealth. Like, I don't know what that means. And so the, what I would think about what is achievable was limited. Like, I would not think that I had options and that I could get whatever job I felt like getting. Like, I didn't think that any of this would be possible because that's not the way, that's not, I, I didn't have all this possibility as a young kid. It was just like, hey, you know, you're, you're going to open up avenues for yourself to do a little bit more than we did because you're educated and that's all that matters. And then I realized that, and, and just, you know, of my extended family, I think my parents uh, were the least educated and the least financially, like, well off. And so uh, a lot of people in my family, my uncles, aunts, whatever, grandparents, et cetera, judged my parents. Like, when they see me and my sister today, I get comments like this all the time at family weddings, like, hey, you guys turned out so well even with your parents. And it's one of those comments where I'm like, yeah, we did. Like, but it's not like they had nothing to do with it just because they couldn't, you know, like leave me something in their will. Didn't make them bad parents. And it also is one of those things that I realized that it doesn't matter what other people think about you. Like nobody actually knows the real story. You know the real story. And so at the end of the day, if you're going to spend your life spinning PR all the time so that you always look good, at some point it's going to catch up with you. It's all fake, right? Like, so why bother? I would rather talk to people about, like, when we go to conferences and do all these interviews and things like that, I was just having a conversation with someone about this. You know, I saw a founder, a well-known founder speak at a big conference for a big media company, and this person was speaking about the KPIs or where they operate their business. And in my head, I knew that the person no longer operates that business. And I was like, it would be great if you talked about how you had failed and had to change a business model 10 times and pivoted so that people can walk away with actually something real and that you can save 10 other founders from making $2 million, multi-million dollar mistakes because the information is there. Like being a founder, having your own company, it's becoming so commoditized today. There's so much information available to us, but people still refuse to actually like tell the real story because we glamorize, and especially in the US, glamorize success. And um, glamorize that, like, it's, you know, like you pulled yourself up by the bootstraps and you got there and you did this. And it's like this kind of God complex with founders. So all of that, I realized lately in the last two or three years being in New York, being in this business environment, that that's not who I want to be. Um, and I think that actually stemmed from when I was growing up with my parents who just who, who weren't the ones that had the rags to riches story, unfortunately. They didn't make it. They failed. And that's fine. I'm glad because for me, I turned out the way that I am because of that experience. Um, and I was able to pull myself up by the bootstraps. But in reality, like I had people helping me along the way the entire time. And I've told myself that I'll always pay it forward because that's just that's how it works. There's no such thing as, as doing it by yourself. I so resonate with all of that and I really appreciate you giving us, a, you know, the whole thing and it's so cool to hear. Okay, cool. So I want to dive a bit deeper into, you know, 
when you went from high school, you were obviously all of that situation and you got into NYU. Like what, what was that? You know, how did that happen? That was definitely tough. So when I was in high school, my mom passed away. And so when she passed away, um, it was just my dad and myself. My sister was actually already in college. Um, she was at NYU as well. And so Honestly, when I think back, I always ask myself, like, why did I want to go to NYU? I think for me, it was a perfect mix of the, I've been working since I was 14. So I needed to work. Like, I knew I needed to work just for my own experience and, like, to also feed myself. So to me, the options were kind of go to state school and get free, a free ride, like, get tuition paid for, or try to go to a private school that for me was attainable. Like, I knew I wasn't trying to, like, reach for the stars here. By like trying to go to Ivy League, I'm like, I can, I think I can get in. I have to be strategic. And then I spent a year like applying scholarships. Like I scoured the earth, like applying to like scholarships for people who want to be lumberjacks. Like I didn't care what it was. I just went for it. Um, and, you know, I knew that I actually wanted, I went in as a history and politics major. My sister forced me to study econ because she's like, I don't know how you're going to get a job and I need you to like feed yourself and pay rent. So like, okay, fine. So I ended up doing all of it mm-hmm. because I refused to give up what I like was passionate about. And that journey was, if it wasn't for my teachers, if I think if it wasn't for my sister, I, I don't think I would have thought that I was good enough to get in. And then I don't think that I was, I would have figured out how to pay for it. But I was so determined because I had a few people that were like, hey, you should just go to state school or community college. You can't afford it. You have no money. That's true. Um, and NYU costs like $200,000 to attend for four years. Um, I ended up getting 80% of it paid for um, because I just, I literally scoured the earth for any dollar that I could get across scholarships, both from college and outside of the school. And then I worked two to three jobs every semester and I paid off my loans in a year. It's amazing. Like it actually is. And when I read that, I said, I think it was something like, you say that it was 130K was paid in scholarships and you self-funded your degree. I literally have written wow in my notes. Like I was like, this is phenomenal. How did you juggle your studies and your like two, three jobs? That was really hard. You know, I think that in my four years, so especially in the Asian American community, Indian, South Asian American community, uh, Therapy is not big, and I I started to actually go see a therapist when I was 18 through school because I just felt so much pressure. I was like, I'm at the school. I don't know what I'm doing. I need to, like, I don't know what I'm building towards. I don't know what my purpose is. I just feel really lost. And it had only been two years since I lost my mom, so I had to deal with a lot of that. And I will say that uh, I didn't necessarily deal with it in the most healthy way. I drank a lot with my friends, but it was easy because everyone was drinking because it's college, but I was doing it for the wrong reasons. I only realized that well into my twenties. And, um, you know, I think I, I definitely suffered from depression. I just didn't know it. You know, I was young and nobody talks about it when you're like 19 and in college and your friends aren't necessarily going through the same thing. So that was really, really difficult. I just felt like I was spinning a lot. It was a constant, like, I'm going to go to work, and then I'm going to class, and I'm going to go to work. Everything was a to-do list. I didn't get to enjoy anything. And I think that a lot of people experience that when they're older and in the grind. I started that grind really young. So I've been just on the treadmill of life, as we like to call it, for a really long time, much longer than my friends, my peers. So that was tough. And what's happened is because of that, I now, into my mid to late 20s, realized that, like, I need to take measures to 
balance that out at a little bit of a different journey than a lot of people and the burnout's getting to me. And so how do I go back and reprioritize like what's important? And now I'm in this kind of journey now where I'm trying to understand what is purpose and what does that mean? And how do you like, you know, at the end of the day, (laughs) it's morbid, but everyone's going to die. And so I've dealt with my mortality. I've dealt with mortality from a young age. I have multiple family members that have passed while I was young my mom and then her brother died two years later. And so for me, like the idea of death does not bother me. It's more that like, I don't want to, I don't want to die and not have felt that I didn't impact somebody's life in some sort of positive way. Like it's not the size of the impact, it's the depth of the impact. And that's kind of, I'm trying to figure out what that journey looks like. How do I build that? And it could be over the long term. Like it doesn't have to be tomorrow, but it's, so those are the types of questions that I've been grappling with because I was on the treadmill at a really early age um, now. And I'm glad that it's happening to me at 28 um, and not at 38 or 48 or whatever. And so I think, um, yeah, the journey was tough. I've dealt with anxiety and depression. And I think what I'm realizing now is a lot of my friends may or may not have gone through the same trauma or struggles that I did as a young age. They're all dealing with that now and don't know how to cope with it. So now you see like 80 wellness apps and like everyone's doing mindfulness and like something about yoga every other day. And it seems to be working. I'm glad that people are doing that. I just think that it's a little bit surface. Like if you're having these issues, you have to dig deeper. And my, you know, like my happy, not perfect app is not going to help me dig deeper. Like it's not going to ask me the questions that that need to be asked. So, so those types of things have to happen through people Mm. and human interaction and opening up, uh, your point of view and what you're exposed to. And I just don't think that a lot of people do that because we're stuck in a bubble. I mean, especially here in New York, Mm. high achieving young people, like it's a bubble. And so I'm trying to understand how to balance that and make sure that that's not the only bubble I'm in all the time or, or make sure that I'm aware, like there's a sense of awareness around me. Again, all of this only really happens because I went through depression, anxiety, um, you know, technically substance abuse, like when I was in college and finally went to therapy to deal with it and deal with those questions. I just want to commend you, Kim, on being able to talk about it. You know, I, it's, it's hard, you know, to go, I went through this, 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 and reel it off and just be real about it. And I think that, you know, the first thing is actually accepting it. The first thing actually is actually admitting that, you know what, this is the situation. And I think so many of us are so afraid to admit it. So many of us are in your position or have been through similar things and we just cover it up and we're like, it's fine. All good. I'll play my happy app and we'll be sweet. You know, how do we as young people, as, you know, people dealing with really hard things, allow ourselves to open up like you have? Like, how, how can we do this? I think, well, one of, a lot of it has to do with fear. I think there's a fear of acceptance, a fear of what is somebody going to think about me? What is somebody going to say? And I think that that's, it's, it's tough, especially for folks that may have grown up in an environment where people have not dealt with a lot of trauma or loss. And so the judgmental factor is much higher, I think. Um, and so when you do want to be real, it's like, oh, it's gauche. Like, how do you, how can you talk about that? You know, it's, this is not appropriate to talk about. 
I think what's happening is, is actually the workplace is pushing that a little bit more, meaning people are being, people, folks, employees are pressuring employers, right, to give all these benefits because people are suffering from anxiety and all of these things. And to talk about mental health and to talk about, um, most recently, like I just froze my eggs and, and after freezing my eggs, I had a, a lot of women like ask me why I was doing it at 28 and, and also were like, you're so young. And then I told them, I was like, well, I've known about my fertility issues since I was 23. And they're like, why did you do that? And I was like, because having a baby is not simple. Like th- right there, the notion is, is like, I get married, I find, you know, my partner and then we can have a baby depending on whatever type of relationship is, but it's, it, and it's fine. I'm just going to have it when I decide a year later, that's not how the human body works. And so, you know, it's, it's a, again, it's a simplified way of thinking because you've never dealt with complications before in your life and that's not your fault. And that does not make you a bad person, but to think that everything's always going to be okay. That's what people want to think. It's what makes them happy. It's what makes them comfortable. But I think what people don't realize is that you can actually find a sense of joy in being extremely uncomfortable. And <laughs> this is going to sound horrible. Sometimes people are really lazy. Like you don't, they don't want to put in that effort to be uncomfortable. And so no one wants to have these conversations. The only time it really happens is if they're pushed by someone else. So I make it a point with my friends to have, just be very transparent. I'm a very transparent person. I will say that like I can't always do that when I'm in business, when I'm at work. Uh, in order for me to succeed, I definitely can't do that. Unfortunately, I have to sometimes play by the rules of the game. And then sometimes I'll, I'll make a, a calculated risk assessment on whether or not I want to break the rule. So it's how my mind works. Um, but yeah, it, I think it's people have to push other people to, to let them know it's okay. And until people open up their um, worlds to allow different types of people in, it's never going to happen. It's so true. And I, this is why I love the show because it's bringing these different perspectives in. It's actually going you know, listen in, like, this is what this person thinks, this is what this person thinks. And, you know, you're all such high achieving and amazing individuals, but at the end of the day, we're all just people, right? And it's just, what what's our experience of what we're going through? I love this conversation. Oh, Kim. Okay. So talk to us a little bit about after university. I just want to get a bit more depth into your story. So you went to, you worked in an investment banking yeah. at JP Morgan. Mm-hmm. What was that first work experience like for you coming out into such a corporate environment? Yeah, it, it was difficult. Mm-hmm. So it was necessarily the corporate environment that got to me. I actually appreciated that structure, mm-hmm. um, for like starting out, but it, investment banking is a grueling, <laughs> job. Uh, you know, you're asked to work anywhere between 80 to hundred hours a week on any given week. Um, and I think, you know, I had never taken a finance class or an accounting class. Like I never took any of these classes. I was not a finance person. I was self-taught. So for me, it was again, being scrappy and just making sure that I was keeping up with everybody else, even though my background wasn't necessarily there. I also, you know, I was in an environment where, you know, people's dads knew the president, like, of the United States. Like, it was just, it was just a different world for me. And I had to make sure that I fit in. So that was my first experience of understanding how to be a chameleon. Uh, and so, you know, I look like something on paper and I look like something on the surface. You don't know what's going on in the background. I'm fine with that. Because, again, people have preconceived notions. And it's only now that I'm realizing that 
actually what's happening in the background is my biggest asset and it's my biggest strength. And that is fundamentally why I think, you know, I can create a lot more value for people and for founders and, and, and anything that I do. So that time I definitely lost a sense of myself. I didn't really know who I was. I didn't really know what I cared about. Um, I was bitter. I was stressed out. I was not a fun person to be around. I think it happens to a lot of people that go into that field. And so I realized I was losing relationships with my family. And like my sister couldn't stand me. She was like, you're so annoying. She was like, you're such a bee. I can't stand you. And she had a point. So I definitely had to take a hard look at myself. Um, and so I had the choice at the end of my time in banking to go into private equity or to stay in New York and take some other job. And I remember waking up the day of my final interview and I had this like gut wrenching feeling in my stomach. I was sweating. I was like, I was like, I don't think I'm supposed to be doing this. Like, I just don't think this is, this shouldn't be happening. No way. I just didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't go. I just didn't get called them. Oh. So I can't do it. I'm sorry. I pulled out and ended up taking this job with NBC instead. And I was like, let me just give this a go. It was really difficult for me. It was a big pay cut and an earning potential. And I made the decision back then, you know, there's this notion of like at a young age, you can build up wealth in a very traditional sense, earn a lot of money or whatever, or you can build up influence. And I'm not talking about being an Instagram star. I meant like just in general with relationships and in business especially. And so I chose the other. I just told myself that if I go this route, I'm going to choose influence and that's going to be my focus. And so that's kind of what I focused on. I love it. And I think it's so many of us come to that crossroads where it's like, or we could take like the pay rise or we could keep going down this path even though it doesn't feel right. Or we could just get real with ourselves and think, hang on a second, that's not going to lead me to where I actually want to go. So I love that you chose the other path. What were those? some of those early challenges working at, at NBC in a completely different environment, media? Yeah, so <laughs> it was definitely difficult. Uh, I, only, I was only there for eight months. Uh, I had been hired into a role where I was the only junior person on like a 10-person team. Everybody else was a VP level and above. Uh, I'd never, you know, it was in a lot of financial analysis. It was more strategy, and I had never learned that. And so it was tough because I didn't really have a lot of, I had to, I had to essentially go and look for my own teachers and mentors. Um, my boss was very busy, and, and I think, you know, at the end of that, that was my first real lesson where her, she was a great person. Uh, my boss and I just did not uh, get along and we weren't, we weren't clicking. We just weren't clicking. And she was pretty honest with me about it. And she's like, look, you're a smart kid, but this isn't going to work. Uh, and so I essentially got laid off. Uh, and that was really tough. She gave me time to like look for another job and it was fine. I ended up at the Huffington Post. I also realized that I have to ask the right questions. And when I'm taking a job and interviewing is the first time I learned that not only just about the person and the team and whether or not the person's going to be willing to teach you or mentor you, but also about what the team is working on. Meaning I learned that the at the time, the news business was very still much focused on television. It's the thing that brought in dollars. And I'm like, I'm a kid of the internet. I was like, what happened to you? Like, this is also important. There's like a ton of audience here and we're missing out on it. And they just didn't understand how to actually create value out of that. And I, I was really bored with the TV business. So I kind of realized very early on, like, the products and projects they're working on matter because you'll lose interest. So I lost interest really quickly. Um, then I went to the complete opposite, which was the Huffington Post. It was like internet first. So 
you know, that was a tough lesson. I mean, I was, I was 20, 23 or 24 and I got laid off and I was like, I did investment banking at JP Morgan and I went to NYU. I don't understand what just happened. What did I do wrong? Like, <laughs> like, what happened? It's like, what just happened? And I was really depressed. I just, my, my spirit was crushed and, and I had a lot of naysayers. People were like, maybe you're just not built for this business. Like, you shouldn't be in business. Like, you shouldn't be in corporate. All this stuff. I just had to ignore them. And these were, like, mentors I went to for advice. And they were just like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't just be – you need to go try something else. And, yeah, it was uh, – I've since – from a young age, but since then to – I think since my days in banking, I say I'm, like, Teflon. I don't have to take things personally. I think that's another thing, like – yeah, I think another thing is just like not taking things personally has helped me a lot. It's helped me protect myself, my confidence, um, and my belief and faith, like in myself and just like just in general. I love it, and I actually think that not taking things personally is something that we all have to just kind of take on board and just go. You know what? Like, it's not actually about us. It doesn't mean just because we didn't get that job or that opportunity, it's not. It's not because of us. It's actually just, it's supposed to guide us to a specific, you know, to a different, in a different direction. So where do you think that actually led you? So obviously you ended up at Vice, but, you know, prior to that Huffington Post, getting through that tough time of going, oh my goodness, like, it's not about me, but like, it feels like it's about me. You know, where do you think that led led you after? So I ended up at, it's it's a lot of timing. So I ended up at the Huffington Post right when Verizon was going to acquire its parent company, AOL. So my job changed really quickly. I went from one brand to 10 brands because um, at, at the time the CEO of the Huffington Post was promoted to manage the entire media business. And so my job just changed in a month. And I was like, okay. So I uh, took on a much larger role and I just had to step into it. And I think within a year, there was already conversations about then them acquiring Yahoo. So I was in the middle of this whole mix. And I think, you know, I got a really quick lesson in corporate politics at its best. And I will say that, you know, what I realized in all of that was you definitely couldn't take anything personally because what you're dealing with now is something that's much bigger than you. And also like you're talking about like $10 billion in transactions. <laughs> and like, so it, you're dealing with something that's much bigger than you. You're just a player in this like very large chess game and you're dealing with a lot of egos and so now you're playing the ego game. And that is a completely different playing field. It was the first time in my life where I felt like, oh, there are some major decisions being made here. And there are thousands of employees this is going to affect. And I'm actually sitting at the table where this is happening. And this is really crazy. I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> I just am. by Just from circumstances. And I was usually the only woman in the room. I was the youngest person in the room. It was It was, it was tough definitely like one of the two people of color like is just a tough situation but even then I had to tell myself like the I couldn't I I, even though I knew that I couldn't let that get to me I couldn't carry a chip on my shoulder when I was being when I was presenting in front of all of these people or speaking in front of all these people who are also in their own minds like oh I want his job and I want that promotion I want that I want to take that business over but he's going to compete for that guy's job and like that's what it was it was it was really crazy and I was I was liaising between both executive teams at the time, and they were all vying for the same position. It was really really nuts. Um, it was 
probably the most that I've learned, though. The people there, the people I worked with at AOL were great because they had been veterans of the media business, and they just taught me so much. And I just learned so much about operations, fundamentally understanding the history of media in this country, the history of digital media in this country, um, and really focusing on the consumer and understanding what it means to build a business focused around a consumer in general and learning about the business, the basically B2C space. That all fundamentally came from when I was at AOL. My boss there, who's still a mentor today, he um, he also, you know, kind of, I didn't, I didn't, he was an ex-consultant and he kind of just gave me like a quick crash course into like being a consultant and taught me ways how to frame ideas and complex issues and actually understand how to build solutions to them, even though you're not an engineer or a coder, you know, teaching me how I can still work with an engineering team, even though I don't come from computer science and being able to bridge that. I learned a lot of empathy when I was at AOL. That's what's helped me a lot. I know how to have empathy with the person sitting across the table from me in any meeting that I'm in. That's why I'm able to do like huge projects across a lot of stakeholders because I know how to talk to people Um, because I don't necessarily come off as a malicious person. I don't come with an agenda. I usually am very much thinking about what is best for the business. Um, And sometimes having to carry out orders uh, from whatever executive I'm working for. And if I don't necessarily agree with that, I will try to voice my opinion. It doesn't always work. But I empathize with the people who may disagree with it and then try to compromise. Like those types of skills I, I learned in that environment because that was a lot of people management, expectation management. You're dealing with a lot of sensitivity. Uh, people's feelings get hurt really quickly. So uh, you just can't make any enemies. That's probably the biggest strength I have is like not, I don't make, I try not to make enemies. It's not that I'm a people pleaser. It's that I try to understand where they're coming from. Now, look, if you are just if I can tell off the bat that you're not a great person and that the decisions that you're making are inherently selfish, and I've dealt with plenty of those types of executives as well, I'm not going to support you. I won't work for you. I can't do it. I've learned my lesson from that. So, yeah, I mean, it was a, a very interesting ride. <laughs> it is so interesting. This is so interesting. I'm literally so mesmerized. I'm not even thinking about the next question. I'm just so into it. Um, Okay, so I do, I just want to dive a a little bit deeper into what advice would you give around some of, you know, around this idea of having empathy and building empathy and being able to actually deal with different types of people and understand people in a certain way. I think that so many of us millennials in particular, glued to our phones, we've, we've almost lost that ability to connect. What advice would you give? I think for me, when I think about if I'm talking to anybody else, I just try to understand if I were in their shoes, what would the world look like, right? Just from from their perspective. And I, I also try to understand that like inherently people try to be a good, like people are good. When I say people are good, I mean, everyone feels good when they do something good. Like everyone feels good when they do something for somebody else or when they like give money to the homeless or whatever the case is. So everyone's inherently selfish. So you're not really going to judge anyone for being like self-involved or selfish, especially our generation. We're in, in incredibly self-involved. I know I am. Yeah. I'm like, if I'm running around the, the streets, I'm not thinking about global warming. I'm thinking about like my next meeting and like who I'm going to chat with and this LinkedIn message I got. Okay. <laughs> so I'm inherently self-involved. Right. It's not that I don't care about global warming, but it's just not top of mind. And so I can't judge someone like, 
essentially I think the issue that I always come across is people like to sit on a moral high horse. Like my priorities are more important than yours or I know what's right and what I should care about and you care about too many materialistic things or you care about things that shouldn't matter or your, whatever the case is. And I, I try not to have those preconceived notions. I think when I was younger, I was like, oh, like I don't want to be with those girls that like just want to get married and like have a house with a picket fence. There's nothing wrong with that. Like why was I judging them? There's literally nothing wrong with that. They just want a nice suburban life and like potentially be a stay-at-home mom and take care of the kids. Totally fine. They don't need to be career-oriented. It's not right for them. Those types of notions are the things that I just don't think people need to judge people about. And my advice there is just that everyone's got a different path, but at the end of the day, everyone has the same human experience. So you have to remember that. You're not dealing with another species. You're not dealing with an animal. Like, you're dealing with the same person you're the same essentially and your differences have only been created through the different types of human experiences that you have but you're all going through the human experience so how are you going to tell me that you can't empathize with the person across the table from you now I know in times like this especially political times like this it's really hard but even you know after the election I I was having a difficult time as are a lot of other people but I also understood why it happened. I didn't blame. I didn't yell. I didn't get angry. I cried a little bit. And then I had to actually, it's ironically, fly to D.C. the next day, that morning for a meeting. And so, um, but I also understood why it was happening. And that pain, pain is is a human experience that a lot of people go through. It may be different levels. It may be for it's very different reasons, the severity of it. But but that pain is coming from somewhere. You're going to tell me you can't empathize with another fellow American's pain and struggles because why, you know? So I think that that's, you know, I think the root of it all actually is, is very much like when people feel pain, that's kind of where the empathy needs to stem from because everyone's gone through it in some way. You can't take that away. From, there's no one walking out there that's like, I've never felt pain in my life and I've been happy every second. That's just not possible because then you haven't lived fundamentally, right? So um, that would be my advice. Think about, if you had to think about anything, think about that person's pain, whatever they've gone through, and then I'll help you at least find some sort of common seed to, to empathize. How do we embrace pain? I tell myself that if I don't, if I don't experience pain, emotional, physical, et cetera, then... I haven't, I'm not living. Like in order to live, in order to, to living is not necessarily equated with happiness and comfort. That's, that's what people get mixed up, right? To, to live a life on this earth is to actually experience different ranges of emotions, of feelings, of experiences, of, of visuals, the things you're seeing and hearing and your five senses, like that. that is what living is about because you've now been given the privilege to be a human being on this earth that can breathe and see and, and hear and do all these things, you're not a squirrel. Like, this is the way I think about it, right? Like, it's like you're not, you're a human being. So in order to live, you need to experience all the ranges that the human body can experience. That includes pain. And so the, the thing is, is it, after the pain is over, that joy is amazing. Because if you don't experience pain and then you experience things that you think are going to make you happy, you know what happens? you're not fulfilled, right? You're not fulfilled. There is, um, I think I saw this. Oh, it was like a movie or something. I remember a woman saying this, that women's bodies are meant to 
go through go through a lot of pain in general. So if women were running a majority of business and, and the kind of the world and geopolitics, we would have less wars because our bodies have experienced so much pain. We're not looking for pain to feel. And we wouldn't like go through all these things, whether it's like, you know, uh, becoming extremely strong and, and, and endurance training and then going and then, you know, potentially like creating the biggest military and then going to war because we experience pain all day. Like our bodies are at war from the time we're born to the time we go through menopause constantly. And it's just like a lot of pain. Uh, so it was interesting that she said that I saw that. it was on this new Amazon show Fleabag, which I love is a great show. Um, that really resonated with me because I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm going to embrace pain and I'm going to embrace pain as a female because every female has gone through it. It is a common shared experience that women have on this earth and that it's extremely powerful. And I think that we're seeing some signs of that. Honestly, to, to tell you, I'm, I'm very tired of hearing about the women's empowerment and like breaking the glass. I'm like, I'm exhausted. So it's not because I don't care. I mentor young women all the time. I work with young female founders. Like it's very important to me to, to help other women, but there is also a vanity behind those types of initiatives. And so sometimes it's hard to tell like what people are doing these things for and whether or not it's for the PR. And so that's when I start getting exhausted, but yeah, sorry, I'm digressing. No, I love it. <laughs> I could literally listen to you all day. I, I think this conversation is so real and I think I'm learning so much and I just think so many of our listeners will be too. Look, Kim, I've, I'm conscious of your time. I don't want to take up too much and I'm conscious of time, but I just want to acknowledge you for the phenomenal work you've done and that you're doing for your outlook on life, for your realness. Honestly, we, we have this say on the show, it's hashtag real talk. And this is just the epitome of what we mean. So I just... I really appreciate you for that. And we acknowledge you for being so open, so real, and for sharing with us your perspectives. Yeah, no problem. I wish, I just hope people are encouraged to do this for themselves. Yeah, it's been a journey for me, for sure. And a journey, a journey it has been. I mean, look, th- amongst all the pain, all the difficult times, you've just soared to the top, Kim. I mean, you've been named a Forbes 30 Under 30 listee. You were considered an Indian-American trailblazer for your work in the Indian-American community in media, um, among many others. And you're currently actually doing your MBA at Harvard. Congratulations. Thank you. That's absolutely huge when I saw that. I said superstar in my notes. (laughs) Um, and it's just so cool to see that someone who's so high achieving, someone who's been through, been through so much can be so real and just talk and jo- talk so openly about the tough things about life. Um, so I hope that's what our peers out there listening take away from today's episode. So we'll come to our final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews here at The Peers Project and The Peers to Peers Podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? What is a value? I think for me, passion, the things that I'm passionate about don't have to equate to my day-to-day job. At the end of the day, it's a job. So I try to tell myself that what I'm doing for my job function is something I should enjoy. I won't enjoy it all the time and I'm okay with that. But the passionate piece of it comes in when I know what objective I'm working towards. And the value of that is that for me, I always want to be helping people. Like I just, no matter what capacity it's in, that doesn't mean that I am going to go necessarily build like a nonprofit and go do something or go, you know, 
go around the world and try to save homelessness or something like that because you can't tackle those types of problems single-handedly. But what you can do is, I'll give you an example, my job advice, like I wanted to just create a better day and ability in life for the producers that go out in the field and go to Syria to report those stories. The journalists or the writers that I have that are in and around Brooklyn, New York, telling stories for people who don't have voices. And I want to be able to make sure that my business work, whether it's finance or operations or business development, is helping them do that because I'm either bringing in money for the company, I'm enabling their lives to be easier because I've fixed something in the operational side of things, I've grown the business so now they have a bigger budget, whatever the case is, that's what I'm doing. And that's what's made me wake up in the morning and go to work. And it's tough. It's you can sometimes it's it's very muddy, but um, you know that that's I always have to keep my eye on the ball, and that's that's the ball for me. My passion is to help people, and I want to make sure that any impact I make, it's a deep impact, and it could be for one person, it could be for two people, it doesn't matter. But that's always driven me, and now I'm in the pursuit of figuring out what is it that I want to do that maybe is a little bit more on the like kind of going out on my own that allows me to marry at the end of the day the ability to do that help people and take all of everything I've learned in business and apply it and so I'm now in that exploration phase mm. I cannot wait to see what you do next Kim you have to keep us updated um, I love that so where can people learn more about you and your work and follow you along yeah so uh I have a website it's just kimkpatel.com I also um, feel free to follow me on LinkedIn. On Twitter, it's Kim Patel24. Uh, so that's really where I'm most active. And then Instagram as well. It's where in the world is Kim because nobody really knows where I am half the time. <laughs> could be in a meeting, could be in another country. I don't know. Could be in a podcast. Like, yeah, yeah, could be a podcast. <laughs> like it's, um, so in any of those places, I'd love to engage with people. I'm very responsive. Uh, and oh, also I'm part of Ladies Get Paid, which is a network here in, in the city. Uh, if you jo- if you have a chance to join it, you should. Um, the Slack, there's like a 20,000 person Slack community that's very active. Um, and I give advice on that all the time. So Love it. We'll link them up in the show notes. We've had a blast. Kim, thank you so much no for, co- for your time Thanks today. for having me. I love it. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.